Open your Bibles to Acts 17, Acts 17, verse 16, Acts 17, 16. We return this week to the book of Acts. We took a break for a few weeks this summer to look at Judges, and now we are going to come back to Acts and, Lord willing, uh, uh, close out the, our study of Acts during this coming ministry season. Uh, as we consider Acts 17, as we look at the second half of this, we are going to encounter the Apostle Paul uh, uh, preaching uh, a fairly well-known sermon on uh, uh, Mars Hill or the Areopagus in, in Athens. And it's a, a sermon aimed at, geared toward the not just unbelievers, but outright pagans, those who worship many gods, those who are polytheists, who do not know the true God, and he desires to uh, bring them to a knowledge, to a saving knowledge of the true God. And as we consider this sermon, it does remind us of our call as Christians to take the gospel into a lost, dying, and dark world. The the great commission that Jesus Christ gave to his disciples and, and which has been handed down to us is the call, is the commission to, to go into all the world and to preach the, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves, how do we do that? How is that accomplished? What is the best way to do that? And I don't know what your personal experience is, but I can tell you I've had a mixed experience when I've tried to do that. God has been gracious at times and used me to, to lead someone to, to Jesus Christ. And then what a glorious thing to be a part of. What a blessing to be used in that way. But probably more often than the, what, I, what we might call the successes in sharing the gospel have been those times when I have shared the gospel and it has been met with rejection. And that's difficult. It's hard to accept. It's, it's painful. I can think of any number of times where I have led Bible studies designed to bring the lost to Christ. Not Bible studies for believers, but for the unbeliever. To have that end with everyone just walking away and saying, no, I, I don't want to believe this. I don't believe this to be true. Times when I have tried to set up Bible studies <clears throat> for uh, uh, lost friends and neighbors, and to have in the end none of them even come in the first place, let alone rejected in the end. And it's discouraging. It's hard. It makes it, it makes you wonder what you've done wrong. Maybe you don't react that way. But that's certainly how I respond. What did I do wrong, Lord? What should I have said differently? How should I have uh, ar- argued the point more effectively? How might I have connected to that person better? And it's interesting, this portion of Acts 17 that we're going to consider this morning is often held up as a model, as an exemplar for how the gospel can and should be shared with the world particularly a a post-Christian or non-Christian world, a world not influenced by the Judeo-Christian uh, uh, tradition. How do we do it? Well, I want us to look at this this morning. We're going to take a look at what Paul says here and, and talk a little bit about why this is held up as an exemplar. And then we're going to talk a little bit about some of the, the mythology that has arisen around this passage. So we're going to look first at the method of Mars Hill, what Paul did 
And then we're going to look at the myth of Mars Hill, how we misunderstand it and misapply it. Um, Before we begin this morning, let me uh, uh, open us in prayer. Lord, as we consider your word, we ask for your guidance uh, upon our understanding of it, that we might uh, come away with an understanding of what it is you want us as your, uh, as your children, as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, what it is you want us to do, how you want us to take your good news to this world. Give us uh, uh, encouragement this morning to do just that with, with bold confidence that, that ultimately the outcome rests with you and not with us. It's because of that hope that we can go forth at all. It's because of that hope that we are so grateful and thankful for you and for Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. So that if you want to know how to live, if you want to know what to believe, if you want to know how to tell others about Jesus Christ, then you have to know God's word. And so I invite you now to hear the word of God from Acts 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined uh, allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 
And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some of the men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So here we have this famous sermon where Paul goes into this, this uh, 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 once leading city of, of learning, Athens, uh, a city of, uh, of historic um, human wisdom and understanding, the, the place where, where uh, uh, you know, some, uh, the famous uh, Socrates and, 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 and men such as him, where they taught and lived and, and led America, uh, American world understanding historical understanding. And Paul comes into this place and he preaches this, this sermon, this sophisticated, this eloquent and, uh, uh, sermon that tries to connect to them. And in connecting with them, uses it as a, a launching place to build a bridge to bring them to Christianity. And by the way, if you search uh, Mars Hill or Acts 17 or Areopagus, if you search these things on the internet, you will find dozens, literally dozens and dozens and dozens of different outlines of how this is the model to be followed when reaching out to the lost. To find that commonality, that shared foundation, that common ground, and to from that build a bridge to them by which they might come to Christ. So let's take a look at what happened here, the, the facts of what, uh, what, what we see here. Um, I've outlined these in, in, as major points there in the, uh, the sermon notes that are available in the bulletin. Let's go through those. First, first of all, we see in verses 16 through 18, we see that there is misunderstanding. Um, we see this in two ways. One, there, it's a city full of idols. They misunderstand the very nature of God, and Paul expounds on that later. God is not wood or stone or metal. That's not who he is. They misunderstand the very nature of God. The fact that it is full of idols, plural. They misunderstand the fact that there is but one God. They believe that there are many gods. And so they misunderstand that also. And then we see in verse 18 um, that they misunderstand even when Paul starts to teach there. Notice that they assign to Paul this idea that he's a, a preacher of divinities, plural. In their mind, he's talking about two people, one named Jesus and one named uh, uh, Anastasia. Now, it would not be that uncommon for them to perceive that way. They were used to gods and goddesses coming in pairs. So that he's talking about Jesus and Anastasia. Well, Anastasia is the Greek word for resurrection. They have mistaken the idea that he's talking about the resurrection. They have mistaken that not as a, an event, but rather as a, a deity, a being. And they have misinterpreted. So they misunderstand the nature of God. They misunderstand the, the, the number of gods. They misunderstand even when Paul preaches to them. There is a great deal of misunderstanding. And we see in the midst of this, in verse 17 there, that Paul reasoned with them. He reasoned with them. Let's not make any mistakes here. While Christianity is more than merely 
academic knowledge. It is more than mere knowledge of facts. It is a fact-based, history-based religion. You cannot be Christian by knowing only the facts, but you cannot be Christian by not knowing the facts. And so Paul does reason with them and explain to them and use the scriptures to articulate to them, particularly at this point in verse 17, he's still in the synagogue reasoning with the Jews. He eventually moves out and does the same thing out in the marketplace in Athens. So there is misunderstanding. And then Paul, then there's inquiry, verses 19 through 21, we see that the, the, the people of Athens ask Paul, tell us more, give us some more information about this. So, you know, in verses 19 and 20, you know, what do they ask? Well, they, they ask, you know, can you come out in the marketplace in a more public setting? You know, those, the Jews won't let us in the synagogue. Things have trickled out about what you're preaching in there. We want to know more about it. Will you come out in the marketplace and tell us more about it? We get our first hint, and I suspect this is the hint, either as Luke is writing. Luke is, by the way, stayed behind in Philippi. He's not with Paul right now in Athens. He's getting this from later from Paul, recounts this to him. So either this is Luke's take on things, or maybe, in reflection, Paul's own take on things. But what we see there in uh, uh, verse 21 is the reason they ask. It's not because they are genuinely interested in believing this new religion. It's just because they like debating things. They like talking about stuff. They like new things. They like to kick it around. They like to hear a new idea. They want to know what's going on around, out in the world. Had, had electronic social media been available back then, the Athenians would have been all over it. What's the newest, latest thing? What's happening? What's going on? Give it, give it, give me one to hear, one to hear, one to hear, one to hear it. And so Paul wades into a situation where he says, okay, you, you've asked, I'm going to tell you, but we get a glimpse right here that even now they're not going into it with a desire to truly understand. Whether they're going into it with a desire to have a debate and a discussion. They ask to know more about this resurrection that they've been hearing about, about this Jesus that Paul's been preaching about, but he seems, it seems to be that their motivation isn't really toward faith. Certainly, you and I have encountered that. I've spent a fair amount of time in the academic world, um, and, and that's a common thing. To want to debate Christianity on the merits, to want to debate the historicity of these things, not so that the, the other can come to a place of belief, but rather just because, as academics, we like arguing about things. We like debating things. We like kicking around these ideas. And we see that going on here. Then there's an explanation in verses 22 through 31. And this is the, the meat of the sermon. Um, by the way, uh, rhetoric, uh, speechifying, oratory, these were forms of entertainment in the, in the ancient world. Um, so don't imagine for one moment that Paul's actual sermon was of this length. This probably went on for hours and hours of him uh, uh, preaching and teaching and, and giving a speech there. And Luke has summarized it for us here. Uh, this would have been a much, much longer sermon. But nevertheless, Luke uh, uh, brings us the, 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 the meat of it, the, the core essentials of it. And as we've already mentioned, what's really there, he, he finds some common foundation. 
you and I aren't so far apart. Look what we have in common. We're both religious. We both believe in God. Let's start there as a place to have this conversation. And then he tries to build a bridge to Christianity. He even brings in their own culture, some of your own poets. And he quotes two different uh, Greek poets there and uses them to try to get the Athenians to come along with him. Finally, we see the response in verses 32 through 34. We see in verse 32, there's mocking that some just scoff. This idea of the resurrection. Can't imagine it, can't conceive of it, never seen it, it can't be true. By the way, I mentioned the academic circles earlier that I've debated these things in. That's one of the most common ones right there. You know, uh, the, the professors of biology and chemistry and physics that I've tended to hang around with can't imagine this being true because they've never seen it. Funny, for a group of people, a group of men and women who have never seen the atom, who have never seen a black hole, who have never seen any number of other things, it's funny that they reject this one outright and believe what they believe. But that's the way of human disbelief. Some mock this. Some express some continued interest. We'd like to know more. And a few follow there in verse 34. Two are named. So what we see here, the method of Mars Hill is there's misunderstanding. Paul addresses the misunderstanding. They, there's inquiry. He responds to the inquiry. Uh, he offers a lengthy explanation, building on some common ground, building a bridge to connect to them, and trying to bring it all home. And then we see the response of, uh, uh, of those who heard. So what do we think of this? How do we respond? How do we handle this? Well, one of the things that I think has been done too often is we've looked at this. We have been wowed by its sophistication. We have been in awe of the uh, eloquence with which Paul reasons and argues. And we have said, this must be the way to do it. This has got to be the way to present the gospel. And we do that without any critical analysis of what the scriptures have to say about this passage. And what ends up happening, I think, when we just accept that this is the way to share the gospel, I think most of us just at that point give up. For which one of us imagines that he or she can even approach this level of sophistication? Which one of us would have been sufficiently knowledgeable of Greek poets to be able to recite two of them? Which one of us would have known, would have walked past an idol to an unknown God and thought, oh, there's a place to start a conversation? We'd have just gone, oh, an idol to an unknown God. Which one of us would be able to think this quickly on our feet? And so we see this and we kind of shut down. We say, I can't do this. And if I can't do this, then what's the point? And I want us to take a more careful analysis 
of Mars Hill, of the Paul's uh, sermon on the Areopagus. Let's take a look at what I'm going to call the myth of Mars Hill. Let's answer a few questions. And, and I've put these in an order that I think go from the weaker arguments to the stronger arguments, so that my case builds as we go along here. I want to ask this question. How did the listeners respond to the Mars, Hills, Mars Hill sermon? How did the listeners respond to this sermon in the Areopagus? And it's a little milk toast, isn't it? Some mock. Some say, ah, I wouldn't mind listening to more. One or two believe. But it's pretty low-key response. Now, we've taken a summer away from the book of Acts, and so maybe we've forgotten. But let me remind you of how responses have gone to Paul in most of the other cities where he has preached. The response has been, on the positive side, much more positive. With Luke using comments like, not a few leading women believed. That's the comment he makes about Thessalonica. Not a few leaders of the community believed. Comment he makes when they were still over in Asia Minor. And in fact, what we see in most of the cities here is Luke using understatement to say that a great many people came to faith in those cities. And here we see just two named, and there's a statement there and a few others. There seems to be this lackluster response in the positive side. But what's even more stunning is what happens on the negative side. This is the first place we have seen Paul where he is not run out of town by those who would persecute him for what he has said. His message doesn't make much of an impact. The leading Jews of the town aren't that upset. In every other community, they have wanted to kill Paul. They've wanted to run him out on a rail. They've wanted to drag him out and stone him. Because his message cuts in to their flock. His message cuts in to their followers. None of that here. None of that in Athens. The response to this message is milk toast on both sides of the aisle. Those who disagree just mock him and walk away. But they don't see any reason to really worry about this guy. And those who agree are relatively small in number. Let's continue to ask the next question. What does history suggest about the effect of the Mars Mars Hill sermon? Well, there's something interesting. When you look at church history, the first evidence of a worshiping congregation in Athens appears around 150 A.D. Just to help you put that in context, Paul would have preached this sermon somewhere around 51 A.D. It's a hundred years after Paul, before church history has any account of there being a church in Athens. And by the way, archaeology supports that. The earliest archaeological evidence of a church in Athens dates to the middle of the second century. A hundred years after Paul. The response to the sermon is milk toast. 
And there is no evidence that a worshiping congregation was established in Athens. What does the epistle to the Athenians suggest about the Mars Hill sermon? Isn't it striking that there is no letter to the church in Athens in the New Testament? Outline, think about all the other New Testament letters, all the major cities to which Paul goes and ministers. They receive a letter themselves, Corinth, Thessalonica, Philippi, or they are told to read the letter from someone else, share the letter with someone else. Even the church at Laodicea, while their letter was not preserved in the canon, according to Colossians 4.16, they got a letter from Paul. And leading churches in Asia Minor, like Laodicea and Philadelphia and some of the others, they are written letters in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Jerusalem, while not named, is undoubtedly, the Jerusalem church is the recipient of James's letter and Jude's letter. And in fact, the only major church that never gets a letter in the New Testament is the church in Antioch, Syria. Why not? Because that was Paul's home church. He didn't need to write them a letter. He was there on many Sundays and could address them directly. The fact that the Athenian church, here is a major important city, and its church is never addressed in the New Testament. By the way, it's also interesting to note, we are in the midst of the second missionary journey. When we come around to the third missionary journey, we're going to see Paul revisit all of the places he went in the second missionary journey, except for one, and it's Athens. He will not revisit Athens. Fourth question is this. Where would exegesis lead us to apply Mars Hill? In other words, putting aside the the eloquence with which he speaks, putting aside the fact that we are wowed by what he says, let's just handle it in a careful, consistent manner. Well, think about what else we have in the book of Acts that we do not assume is meant for us to follow. One time, Paul gives an address like this. Eight times we, record, we read that he goes into the local synagogue and begins preaching. Now, why is it that we hold this up and say, this is how you do ministry, and now nobody anywhere is saying, hey, you ought to start the local synagogue. Because we understand that Acts is a record of what happened, not a prescription for what should have happened, much less for what you and I should do. It is history. This is different than the epistles, where they are written to give instruction. This is a record of what happened. We also have to recognize that even in places here where it specifically gives instruction, Acts 15, we saw that some months ago, the Jerusalem Council, there were these debates, and they write a letter to the churches, and they say in the letter, do not partake partake of, of bloody meat. I don't know of a single church today that wants to take you up on church discipline because you like your steak rare. 
It specifically says, don't do it. We do it all the time, and we're okay with it. Why? Because we understand that that was an instruction given in that time and place because that meat was used in the temples, the pagan temples. It wasn't that they cared about rare steaks, it's that they didn't want you associating with the pagan temple. So even where Acts gives specific instructions, we tend to understand that it was for that church. Why do we take this one passage and treat it as though it's the must-follow method? The only way to do evangelism. We see that the listeners respond in a very mild-mannered way to this sermon. It doesn't give evidence of being highly effective. Church history reports no established worshiping body in Athens for a hundred years after Paul. It doesn't appear to have been particularly effective. There is no mention of the Athenian church after this point. Paul does not revisit Athens on his next journey, nor does he ever write a letter to the Athenian church. This appears not to have been effective. There is no exegetical reason to pull this out of history and say this is what we ought to do. And finally... What did Paul think of his Athenian sermon? What did Paul think about his preaching on Mars Hill? What did Paul say and do in response to this? Well, there are two things we ought to note. One, Paul never again, we don't ever again have a record of him taking this approach himself. If this is the way to get it done, why did Paul never do it again? If this is the model for cross-cultural, post-Christian outreach, non-Christian outreach, why does Paul never take this up again? And in fact, in the next three cities, he's going to return to the, in Corinth and in Ephesus, and even when he gets back to Antioch, he's going to go back to the synagogue approach. He's going to go into the synagogues. Never again does he go to the marketplace. Never again do we have any record of him taking this approach. And then there is that amazing opening to 1 Corinthians. The next city after Athens is Corinth. When Paul writes 1 Corinthians, chapters 1 and 2 in particular, he goes on and on. He goes at great length to point out all the ways that he did not preach to Corinth with worldly wisdom, with uh, eloquent words. He preached to them with great simplicity. And in fact, in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5, we read the following. And we'll look at this more carefully next week. And I, when I came to you in Corinth, the next city after Athens, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The emphasis Paul puts in the opening of 1 Corinthians on the simple way that he came to Corinth 
that he did not use eloquent words, that he did not use the wisdom of this world, that he did not seek to use sophisticated approaches. What is he talking about? Where did he do those things? There's only one place, Athens. Paul's assessment of himself is that what we did in Athens didn't work. So where does that leave us? What is the meaning of Mars Hill for you and for me? If it is this eloquent, sophisticated argument, but if there is all, the, all these biblical reasons to look at it and go, it doesn't appear to have worked, where does that leave us? For this seems to be, in a lot of ways, the high water mark of Paul's preaching. This is, by any uh, worldly evaluation of speechifying, the best of his speeches. And if this failed, then what hope does the gospel have in the mouths of you and me? Well, I think what we need to realize is this. That Acts is not a record of failure, but of phenomenal success. It's not a record of how the church petered out and vanished, but how these uh, 11 rather sheepish men at the beginning of the book grow exponentially and become this force that changes the world. So how did they do it? And the answer is this. They just talked about Jesus. They just told people about Jesus. They proclaimed the historic facts of Jesus. They said, hey, listen, this guy named Jesus, he lived. And we know he was born of God because he was born of a virgin. Only deity can pull that off. But we know he was one of us because he was born of a woman. And we know that he was acceptable to God because he was perfect. And we know that he made us acceptable to God because he died. And we know that God has accepted that sacrifice because he was raised from the dead. And they proclaim these historic truths and said, this good news is available to you as well if you will simply believe it. And in that weakness, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, in that shaking approach, the gospel went forward and people were saved. You see, there has never been a time when God's elect fell through the cracks because the, the missionary didn't do his job right. There's never been a time when God's elect accidentally went to hell because you didn't share the gospel over the back fence correctly. There has never been a time where God's elect failed to respond to the call because you or I were inadequate to the task of calling. Far from being a reason to not share the word, far from being a reason to not evangelize, the sovereign election of God in history 
is the reason to evangelize. Because it takes all the responsibility, all the pressure, all the challenge off from us and puts it completely on him. You see, we like to say that the gospel, the good news of the gospel, is that my salvation rests in God, in what he accomplished through Jesus Christ, and in that alone. But somehow we think the salvation of other people rests in God and what I say. But if, if my salvation does not depend on me in any way, and it does not, then why would their salvation depend on me? The good news of this passage is not that it's this amazing model that we've got to kill ourselves to figure out how to follow. The good news of this passage is that Paul tried something, and it didn't work. And he went back to the simple message that Jesus Christ came. He lived, he died, he rose again. And that's the power of God unto salvation. And each one of us can deliver that message. Each one of us can share that truth. And each one of us can then turn it over completely to the Lord, trusting him to work in the heart of those who are his and bring them to salvation. You know, the first Sunday in November, we are going to have a congregational meeting. And one of the things we are going to do in that meeting, among some other things, one of the things we're going to do in that meeting is talk about. We're going to, have, we're going to be at a point where kind of our study of, of the mission portion of Acts is kind of winding down. And we're going to talk a little bit about how then do we apply this in our church? What does this look like? What, what should we be doing? How do we reach our time and place in which God has put us? But one of the things that we know will be a part of that is the simple declaration of the good news of Jesus who died for those who believe. Let's declare that with clarity, with frequency, with excitement, with uh, enthusiasm, with hope not worrying about whether or not we can measure up to the myth of Mars Hill. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that our salvation rests entirely in you, and we thank you that it, the salvation of our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones also rests entirely with you, so that we are not on the hook we are not uh, uh, going to be uh, uh, accountable because we didn't explain it correctly or we, we weren't quite sophisticated enough or our argument wasn't uh, uh, watertight enough. Give us the courage to simply declare the bold truth of Jesus Christ in history and then give us the faith to trust you to work. knowing that you will save yours. You will grow your church as you have seen fit to do in the past and will continue to do in the future. Lord, in this confidence, give us a renewed commitment to going out and proclaiming. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.